Hello, humans. Welcome to the VMware podcast brought to you by Martin. Today, I'm joined by Ian. Thanks for joining me today, Ian. My pleasure. So this uh, this podcast will be a two-parter. So first part, to provide a bit of context, really, for, for those that, that then go on to listen to part two, uh, I think it's good to understand your background, how you really came to the point to interact with the Isle of Man and Isle of Man sport. So perhaps set the scene. Uh, we touched on just before we came on air about your, uh, uh, I suppose, the sliding door moment to get into the sporting area. Uh, so do you want to maybe just touch on that as a start point to set the scene? Yeah, yeah. Uh, being a man of a certain age, we could go back to uh, some very old sliding doors here. Because um, I've been involved in sport and volunteering in sport as well as participating since um, I was a kid in Fleetwood uh, in Lancashire and uh, I lived there till I was 18, went to university. Um, the, uh, the dream I had, we were all going to change the world when we were 18, Martin, right? Yeah. Um, um, so I had been on a geography field trip round central Lancashire, saw what a mess, you know, the area around Wigan, St. Helens was because of the coal, went to Skelmersdale, Newtown, first generation Newtown, which was a complete heap and, and human's fault. So I went to university to do town and country planning. That was how I was going to change the world. Uh, always thought I was, um, I didn't want to tell Mrs. Smith she couldn't paint a garage door pink in a conservation area, none of that nonsense. I, I wanted to um, get involved in, in, in well, what we now know is about you know, sustainability and environmental concern. And I, I, I did five straight years at Manchester University uh, and emerged with a MSc in pollution and environmental control that nobody was interested in. Um, went into, therefore, insurance, because I had to flog it all the way through the directory of opportunity for graduates. Um, and, well, I didn't swan around. I mean, I did have a career in financial services, did okay out of it. Um, made myself redundant from the Royal Sun, Royal Sun Alliance after 18 years and ended up in insurance uh, and started to combine insurance with my interest in sport and uh, one of the organisations that I insured in the latter part of my financial services career was an organisation called the British Athletes Commission, um, ostensibly the Union for Olympic and Paralympic Athletes, just like the PFA is for football, the PCA for cricket, etc. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I um, I'd insured them, um, and I'd done a bit of work ahead of the London Games, which was inspirational to me. And maybe we, we talk, touch on that. Um, uh, and uh, the chair at the time, the Olympic swimmer, Karen Pickering, rang me and said, um, I, I'm in the shit here. I've just been told we've got two weeks of money left. And this was early 2012 in, the, in that year when the members of the BAC made the United Kingdom feel great and warm and what a fantastic atmosphere that was. So they were at the top of their game and their union was at the bottom, effectively. Right. Um, and I joined as the chief executive uh, after it was in special measure, shall I point out. They, uh, uh, and did that job for five or six years um, well, maybe we'll unpack what, what happened in that lot. Um, yeah. A very interesting period of time for the evolution of sport. Um, left in 2017 because uh, I had to, um, largely because of my own mental health. Set up um, a bespoke and boutique consultancy called DocuSport, which is effectively just me, um, which is all about duty of care in sport. Um, and uh, that gets me to being on the Manx Wise podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's unpack, like you say, let's unpack some of that. So looking at the, just out of interest and insurance side, what is that, is that insurance for athletes that, that lose their career and need insurance? Does that, is that insurance against accidents? Where does that, where does, how does that fit it, together? It, it was more about, um, Business insurance, public liability, commercial liability, yeah. blah blah blah, for uh, for the national governing bodies. Um, 
yeah so it 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 was more about that rather than you know that uh i did come again into insurance for athletes and again we'll talk about that because it was uh, not in as good a place as it could have been um but no it, it it was more it was just it was more like business insurance um employees liability business combined insurance policies effectively yeah okay okay so then you touched on there 2012 and and the call and the 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 lack of money we i suppose we, we peeled back nine years and as a as an observer of sport it's uh i think it's london olympics isn't it 2012 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and obviously as an outsider it's uh uh, it's many years of injections of lottery money that have given the opportunity to, to obviously medal focused and certainly on the outside, a very successful games. I, I guess maybe then underneath that sport in general, there was still areas to work on. Hence the, hence maybe the issue you, you were sort of first introduced to there. Well, I mean, the thing was, that, um, you know, lottery funding has been fantastic, right? Let's let's acknowledge that and park that for a kickoff. Um, but you know, there, there became a very big focus on funding, and in order to get funding, you needed these things called medals, and in order to win these things called medals, you need these things called athletes. And um, and the the BAC, the BAC had been in existence. Um, a couple of people, uh, Kath Bishop. Um, Pete Gardner, who were Olympians in 04 in Athens, it was their brainchild and others, Goldie Sayers, the, the javelin thrower, they um, the, the started the BAC. But um, the BAC didn't really get going in those eight years between 04 and 12. Um, and so therefore, and critically, the athletes didn't have a voice. Um, so I joined, as I say, in 2012, um, back end of 2012, started 2013 for the, the next quadrennial, the Rio cycle. And, um, and I had to do two, well, I had to do two things critically. One, get the organization out of special measures, which I, I did within 18 months with the help of others. Can I ask, just interrupt there, just a quick question. Why that moment? Uh, I sound rude, but why did they feel you had that skill set? <laughs> Maybe they couldn't find anybody else. They, uh, <laughs> You're the biggest mug they could uh, find. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say so. Well, it was, you know, I, I had worked on the talent pathway. Uh, I'm, a trust, I'm a trustee of... In the UK, the English registered charity Sports Aid, okay. which is about early doors talent pathway. Yeah, okay. I'd sat on the board of British Triathlon 07 to 13 as the major events director. Yeah. yeah. So I, it, it wasn't like, who's this no, no. All, all off the street? It was. Yeah, no, I think I was thinking about the, obviously, we haven't touched on that from a, from a listener's point of view to see some context to, again, what, why you were, why you felt they felt you were the man for that job. Uh, oh. Yeah. So, uh, so there was a there was some relevance, and to be honest with you, I'd had enough for financial services, and probably more to the point, financial services had had enough for me. So, um, so it, it, it was it was an opportune time, um, and yes, you know, so uh, as major events director of British Triathlon, I knew quite a lot of people. Well, I was known to let's put it that way, I was known to a lot of people in UK sport. Um, I had done um, some of their leadership development programs and things. So, you know, I, I, I suppose I had a reputation that uh, held me in good stead. Yeah. 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 So, so I was talking about the two things, yeah. yeah. One, special measures, let's get out of that. And two, the other thing that was important was, was to give the athletes a voice in a system that, where they hadn't had one. Um, and that was where the, some of the, my early challenges came. There were, there were some CEOs and PDs, um, performance directors who were great. You know, I, I, when I'm invited to do these sorts of, uh, presentations, I always reference the guy who's become a very good friend of mine now, Adrian Christie, who was, is the CEO of Badminton England. 
And his response when I rang him and said, um, I'm the CEO of the British Athletes Commission, Adrian's response was, it's very important the athletes have a voice. You're very welcome to come in. But most of the sports um, were either ambivalent or antagonistic about having, quote, union representation uh, within their um, performance environment. Do you think the reason for that was? Um, control, oh. probably. Mm-hmm. The, um, and, and potentially a threat. Um, I, I don't, you know, <laughs> you'll have to ask the many people who will remain anonymous for this podcast, so it's going to be difficult for you. The um, Why? Because uh, I... Um, yeah, it, it 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 was you know historically there hadn't been that presence. Um, maybe um, maybe a lack of trust, but not being prepared to uh, walk halfway and find out where the common ground was. Um, and it started that way very much so. Twenty twelve thirteen. Look, you know in the build in the build up to. Well, there was what there was one guy, and he has to remain nameless. Um, but I rang uh, one of his athletes rang me because um, she had a grievance, and I rang him in 2013 and said, "I'm Ian Bray, the CEO of the BAC," and he said uh, over the phone, "We're not having an effing union in here. Put the phone down." Yeah, right. Well, over four years, over that four-year cycle, by the time we got to all of the process and procedure ahead of Rio, I'd been invited to comment on his draft selection policy. And I actually sat on the selection committee as an independent representative. So I did, um, you know, I, <laughs> I must have done some things right somewhere, Martin. They, um, uh, but it was important for the athletes to feel, you know, I wasn't representing Martin Hall, the cyclist in the cycling, in, in a cycling selection. I was re- I was representing all cyclists that were eligible for selection. Um, I didn't work in British cycling, by the way. (laughs) Do do, do you think uh, part of maybe reluctance was that, obviously, I assume they're obviously ultimately under pressure as well with regard to one, getting funding and then ensuring that they're, you know, high on the medal table as well. And therefore, not the not the, obviously the export spanner in the works or the athlete is, but there's that reluctance to you know I'm working on working in the way I want it to work, and if pe- people, you know, it's a, it's a very insightful question if I may say so. They um, because you know if you think about it, then you have you have these you know, the phrase they use, which you may have heard, is a is a is a accountable officer. So normally it's the CEO of the national governing body. Right. But um, and I go back to my try when I started in triathlon and um, I started at at the beginning of the London cycle after Beijing, after the Beijing Games. Right. And and you're like, well, the accountable officer goes to see UK sport in this case and says, I need um, whatever, 30 million. And they say, right. And I'm being very simplistic here. But for 30 million, we need um, two gold medals in the bronze. Right? Off you go. So then the CEO would go to see the PD, and I'm I'm making this up as I go along. These aren't the actual fat figures. The CEO then goes along to the PD, and the PD says, well, go on, what have you committed me to then? And <laughs> well, it, it it's it's a golden, it, it's it's a golden and three medals of another of any other colour. Well, well, thanks very much for that. Um, leave me alone. I'll uh, see you in 2012 at London when we'll do what we're going to do. So the pressure that the accountable officers under huge. The pressure that the PD and the coaches are under, many of whom aren't necessarily employed, but they are retained. They're very vulnerable too, right? So yeah. you, you know, they want to control as many controllables as possible. And so you don't need this Herbert coming in all of a sudden left field who's describing himself as a union leader because you don't, you know, right, well, one out or we're not having any of that. So, so it was, I, I understand the, 
And also, critically, Martin, which is one of the reasons why I try and do some of the work I'm doing now with UK coaching, is the athletes had a representative body, albeit embryonic, and I was trying to make it more visible. The coaches didn't have anybody. So, you know, who the hell did they have to turn to? Um, And... And it became very difficult in that environment um, for coaches. You know, I'm, I'm sure. Well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to ask you to write this down because we'll talk about the investigations that took place post the Rio Games when there were all those investigations into swimming, canoeing, so on and so forth, cycling. The um, and that made the coaches feel very vulnerable, and that made it made good coaches feel very vulnerable. And it was never about, you know, we need good coaches to become great coaches. Um, So, but they felt vulnerable because they weren't, you know, they were felt very isolated. And was your sort of, when you started to get involved, did you always see the development of what you were doing that way from one, giving the athlete a voice to then helping the coaches? No. No. No, I... I, I, I finally felt, and we talked about this off air just before we began, right? It took till my 50s for me to find out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, so I'd had this muck about in financial services for 20 odd years at the time and, and, and learned a lot. Um, but I thought I became very blinkered uh, and I thought I'd been put on this planet to be, you know, to help the athletes have a voice because whilst the system was saying we're fantastic, we win lots of medals, I was finding out in many cases at what cost. Yeah. Um, and it, and I hit a brick wall. It, it, well, in in 2017, the, the whole thing became too much, um, and I um, I was mentally ill. And, and I had to leave. But, and interestingly, your man Adrian Christie comes back into the story again here, the guy from badminton. I, um, although I am, well, there are several things that count against me talking about mental health. One, I'm a male, two, of a certain age, and three, from the north of England. And you're not supposed to talk about this stuff, right? Yeah. But I was speaking to Adrian, and I said I'd been... Um, signed off work with general anxiety disorder and depression and I was born burnt out and Adrian said to me you know what Ian I know three people like you and somebody else said uh, Ian I'm on 250 milligrams or something it's the only way I can cope Ian I'm on six pints a night and I suddenly and I, I I was in a really bad place and I thought I'd lost my sense of purpose which was also, you know, not only had I let myself down, my family down, I'd let 1,500 members of the BAC down. So I was in the right bad place. And then I had this conversation with Adrian and then a couple of other people. And I suddenly thought, bloody hell, who's looking after the people looking after the people? Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I had done some work with um, – I've just been – Brought left field a gin and tonic, Martin. Which is very yeah, nice. Happy days. Okay, so, so you're very good health. Um, so, yes, I'd, I'd done some work uh, as CEO of the BAC. I was invited by Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson to help her in her duty of care reviewing sport. Um, and that's the docu in docu sport, duty of care in action. Um, so, I, I was reignited, you know, I, I thought I'd driven up a cul-de-sac and that was it. Yeah. But actually, I'd, I'd reached a T-junction. Right. And I could either have turned left and probably done gardening and painting and decorating for the rest of my life or turned right and thought, but hell, I'm not finished here yet. Yeah. What's it? You know, it may be only a small contribution, but yeah, I haven't finished yet. <laughs> So let's uh, maybe build some sort of blocks around back in, I suppose, back in again in 12, because that's obviously a, a moment when we talk about the, the athletes getting a voice. At that stage, 
from your own interaction with sport, would you that that desire to have a voice was that obviously a bit you touch on their mental health was but was that voice more just about was there something specific or general that was again I, I, you used the word about a trade union and them having a voice was there particular issues at that time just in general or did you different athletes have different things going on and it was just that that you wanted to create that environment for them to talk about whatever that might be no i i Martin, in, in, in 2011, early part of 2012, I was a window licker. Now, mm. I, was watch, I was watching the television like you were and thinking, wow, this is fantastic. Aren't we great? I had a Union Jack hanging outside my bedroom window down Church Lane where I live. I'd been, you know, I, I just thought it was all fantastic. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And then for many of the athletes, they didn't know what they didn't know because the BAC hadn't had a voice. So I was, I mean, I had some good, some good people around me. Like I said, um, Tani, Tani was on the board of SportAid um, when I was, I still am, she's not. And she was my go-to, she was my mentor. Um, and um, I, so it was very incremental how it how it sort of built up. But you know, I learned things through experience, through through stories. I mean, you have to remember, nobody ever rang the BAC up, rang me up, and said, "You know what, Ian, I'm having a great time here. <laughs> the coach is brilliant. The environment is fantastic. I'm ripping up trees. Thanks very much." Didn't have one of them. The one of the early cases. You know, I, I, you know, I, I entered this with no. Well, I, I mean, I suppose I had fifty years of experience doing stuff, and I have a degree of common sense, and I think I had an innate moral compass, um, which came more to the fore. So, and actually, they're not bad things to start with, right? No, no. The, the, but I'll give you an example of um, how we all didn't know what we didn't know. There was an athlete who could call himself a Paralympian because he'd been to London and represented us, his country, in his sport, which will keep out of it. He, um, and he went, and you know how this works, you, you know enough about performance sport, right? He went to London and they said, get all this multi-games experience nonsense out of your system get used to standing next to Usain Bolt in McDonald's, all of that, get rid of all that because your time is going to be in Rio and we want all of that nonsense and noise stripped away so you can focus on being as good as you can be um, at the Rio Games. However, he was bullied by his coach and he was bullied by his head coach. So when I started to find out that he was coming my way, uh, he'd been sectioned. Um, and it was his family that started the process. And as he was a Paralympian. Um, and uh, so, so I rang up the, um, the Activity Alliance. Um, and I said, what, do you, what have you got for... Oh, no, I rang the, I rang the, the, the CPSU, the Child Protection Sport Unit, first. Um, I've got this problem with this uh, vulnerable athlete. How old is he? 23. Uh, I exaggerate for effect. Oh, will we finish at 18? Cheerio. Wow. The, I rang the Activity Alliance, which is the umbrella organization for all the uh, disability sports. What have you got to uh, protect somebody who's the age of 23? Um, uh, we haven't. The, um, what did you say this guy's name was? Jimmy Smith. Uh, oh yeah, no, we had somebody from Jimmy Smith's family on the other day. Oh great, what did he what did he recommend? Ring you. Oh right, brilliant. They, I then rang the Sport and Recreation Alliance, the umbrella body for national governing bodies. Uh, what have you got for protecting vulnerable adults? Well, we've had this committee for three years, Ian, and we're just about to wind it up because nobody's listening to it. Saying, so, do not wind this committee up. I will be back. <laughs> and um, 
again, the advantage of being sort of multi-hat wearing in sport, there was a presentation of the new five-year strategy, four-year strategy for Sport England, which the then CEO, Jenny Price, was giving to the Board of Trustees of Sport. I'm sat there. Key priority number six, inclusion. So our chairman says, oh, well, that's all brilliant, Jenny. Thank you very much. Has anybody got any questions for Jenny Price? And I stick my paw up. Um, I think you've got one hand tied behind your back, Jenny, before you start with this, because there's nothing to protect vulnerable adults in sport. Uh, yes, there is, Ian. Uh, no, there's not, Jenny. Yes, there is. No, there's not. So uh, we were separated. He says, um, make an appointment to come and see me. And I did. And to Jenny's credit, she said, um, Ian, I owe you a huge apology. You're right, there's nothing. And I've given funding to the Ancraft Trust, which is a charity that specifically looks after vulnerable adults in society, adults at risk. I've given them, I've given them some seed funding to set up a strategy in a framework for sport. Right? They, so meanwhile, my man, the Paralympian, he, I've gone to his sport and I've said, um, what about this case of Jimmy Smith? Well, we've investigated that. No case to answer. Right. He, and I saw, I saw somebody, a senior member of the, one of their governance committees at a, at a meeting who stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with me threatening me, they, so I'm six foot three, used to play rugby. I'm not, I'm not standing back then, right? But I just thought this, this again proves to me there's something, there's nobody representing the athletes here. An athlete who's worn down mentally poorly, how is he going to fight this? What he not? Anyway, we did a, um, this guy's family did a freedom of information request. So we got barrel loads of email correspondence, et cetera, mentioning Jimmy Smith. They went through it and we found something that just was damning. And so I went back to the chief exec and said, how about it? And uh, we ended up with a mediated solution for this guy. Oh. Now, that took me two and a half years. Now, you can imagine that, you know, athletes... A, they're not in any great place. Two, the people they're challenging are the people that can dictate and inform their careers. And three, they're not known for their long-term patients. They, but I did. And, I, and it was doing cases like that, I think, that suddenly thought, you know, people began to think, hang on a minute, there's somebody that might be on our side. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, you mentioned there with the, with the athlete, it was the family that came forward. Do you find sort of from your experience, is it, is it a variety from, uh, or our athletes, sorry, I, I suppose what I meant was, is it more often the, the people around them that are pushing the athletes to to, to seek some help or was it, was it some, was the athletes, yeah. or is it becoming more common now for the athletes to step forward and say, I've got a problem I, here? I, I don't think, but I think the majority of the cases uh, it was athletes or partners of athletes okay. yeah. that came forward. You know, you, you trigger another one. You know, bear in mind, I'm, I'm on a very steep learning curve here. Yeah. They, they, um, you trigger another case in my mind. And this is, a, this is another thing about fairness and transparency and values, right? So preparation for the Sochi Olympics, the Winter Games, you know, in Russia, 2014. I had a phone call at half past nine at night on a Friday night from an athlete. And he said, is that Ian Braid? I said, yes, it is. He said, I can't speak anymore. I'm going to pass you to my girlfriend. And he had been told on that Friday afternoon that he wasn't going to be selected for Sochi. And he'd been told deliberately on the Friday afternoon he wasn't going to Sochi because their, their selection policy said, you've got 48 hours to serve notice to appeal, <laughs> i.e. Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, right. So, and, and again, this, 
this wasn't unique, I found. But you can see, I'm, you, know, you understand, mm. I stopped licking the windows <laughs> quite quickly. Yeah. The, um, so anyway, in this guy's case, um, I talked to, talked to his, his partner. She said, you know, what can you do? We're up against all this. Um, there is a fantastic organisation in sports governance called Sport Resolutions UK, independent arbitration service for sport in this country. I, I'm biased. I used to sit on its management board as, a, as the CEO of the BEC, but it is brilliant. And so spoke to the athlete nine o'clock at night, said, I'll do what I can do. Go, made a phone call to Sport Resolutions UK, said, um, I need a pro bono lawyer. Because um, of course, many of these athletes on national lottery funding haven't got, you know, haven't got money. It's not a, it's not a salary. It's an allowance. Um, so they can't afford good lawyers. But the SRUK has a pro bono legal panel. They, so I rang and I said, I need a lawyer. Going for a bike ride. I'll ring you when I get back. And we got, and um, we got a lawyer. I briefed the lawyer Saturday lunchtime. He spoke to your man. And we submitted an appeal, much to the shock of the national governing body, uh, ahead of nine o'clock on the Monday morning. Uh, we didn't win, but we gave it, you know, and there weren't that many that I did regard as winning, but it wasn't, it wasn't winning that case per se. It was about putting people on notice that this organization, the BAC, is here for the athlete. Yeah, right. And, and we're watching. So, and I suppose, you know, when these guys come together at camps and, you know, word gets around, you know, you haven't got anything. I used to deal with loads of athletes and they said, look, there's no point in me appealing this selection because I'm not going to win. And I'd always say to them, look, if we don't appeal, you're right, you're not going to win. If we do put an appeal in, we don't know what we don't know. And you might just. And... Yeah, we have, to, we have to do that, and we have to put these people to account. Yeah, yeah, and eventually the the weight of you know case after case, the the, the momentum will eventually. They might not help themselves, but they might help an athlete down the road who does oh. appeal eventually when there's enough noise going on and there's enough of these appeals. But like you say, if you do nothing, nothing will get done. No, so you know, well, we mentioned briefly duty of care. The, I mean, it was one of the. You know, you can imagine the state, the emotional state athletes were in when they rang me, having been told that their Olympic or Paralympic dream had just been shattered and yeah. they weren't expecting it. You can imagine the sort of state they've got themselves into, and rightly so. Um, so <laughs> I was when, say- I eventually, when, I, when, I, when I saw my psychotherapist eventually in 2017, when I realised I was poorly, he said, it's no wonder you're poorly in. You've had five years of vicarious trauma. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, do, I do want to dig into that in a, in a moment. Just just quickly back on athletes coming forward. Obviously, you mentioned the the bullying case and, and there when athletes not selected. Were there kind of, what other kind of themes were there that athletes, when it comes to care and duty of care, what, what were the most common issues you well, saw? Well, it was predominantly uh, selection was huge. Um, the and is that always a difficult area? I'd imagine because there's all and I, I wouldn't know selection processes, but I imagine there's always an element. I suppose there is time, so you can rely on, but certainly there's elements of discretion, if that's the right word, in there, which then does lead to. Well, there's it's a big pool in itself um, in that. Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure how familiar athletes ever were with the athlete agreement they signed that got them their funding, or were aware of the selection policy and processes until they counted against them. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a hard educational thing thing to to go through. So, so I was trying to. On, on, if you look at selection, I was trying to do two things. One was react if somebody said, I haven't been 
hit and have you got a legitimate grounds for appeal? Let's have a go. But I was also trying to do be proactive and and, and get influence in the selection process that was being designed because it was every four years, be it an Olympics, Paralympics, Commie Games, then the selection policies processes had to be submitted to the BOA or the BPA or Commonwealth Games England or whatever um, for approval. And <laughs> only because I work, worked across effectively 40 sports, archery to wheelchair basketball, I probably knew more in 2016, 17 about selection policies for performance sport in this country than anybody else, right? Largely because I was in a, <laughs> you could have stood anybody that knew anything in a phone box and I was in it. <laughs> they, so I went to Commonwealth Games England ahead of the Gold Coast and I said, I've got all this knowledge in my head, which is a waste of time. Can I help you in your assessment of the selection policies and for the Gold Coast, um, good governance, due diligence, duty of care, call it what you want. So Paul Blanchard, the CEO, who coincidentally I'd worked with in the Royal Sun Alliance 20 odd years back, oh, okay. right? small world, yeah. he, he said, I'd be delighted here. And I looked at some of these selection policies and they just hadn't been challenged for years. Right, sports making in it, sports telling athletes whether they've been successful and been selected after they've already made the team announcements to the BBC and the ITV and the media. Right, a joke. The all of this nonsense about Friday afternoons and uh, and twenty four hours, forty eight hours to appeal. The so I started to move those, um, and the BAC, to its credit you know, is, has continued that engagement and involvement in in the build-up to Tokyo, which is fantastic because you, you have to pass somebody back. So selection was big. Yeah. Um, the uh, funding was another one. Um, and I did, um, and that was either, you know, we're, cut, we're cutting your funding because of your performance or cutting your funding full stop or um, you're in injury, and it, there were all sorts of things. And yeah. and I always said, you know, I always felt that these were fantastic, I mean, fantastically talented young people, right? And their strength was they were fantastically talented athletes. Their weakness was they were fantastically talented athletes. And, you know, they hadn't got grey hair and scars and been round the block by definition. They, yeah. And they just needed somebody to, you know, I can remember one uh, I mean, famous Olympic athlete rang me. Who are you again? I don't know who to trust anymore. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, and she was 24 hours into the 48 hour window to serve notice to appeal. Right. Bloody hell. I've got some work to do here. They, um, so it was, it was all of that. And, you know, one of the things that I did do a lot with started in 2014. I I had three athletes. I was I had to be involved in in the process to support three athletes in three different sports in the period of six months who attempted to take their own life. Right. They, would they open up to you fairly, or was that kind of stuff that would just come out? Maybe post. No, that, yeah, shoot, it, no I, I, I don't know. I, I, I forget how some of them came. There, there came a time when um, there were some who, you know, you, you, you trigger another thought off of another athlete who um, he'd had to, he was trying to combine his degree with his Olympic ambition. Uh, he lived in the north of England. His sport was based in the south. And, and, and he had a girlfriend and, and so on and so forth. And I remember him ringing me. Um, I hadn't spoken to him 
since he transitioned out of sport, but he rang me and I and I knew it was him because it said his name on the on the phone. But all I heard was a man crying. Right. And saying, and then he eventually says, Be in the black dog's pack, and I don't know who else is talking. Right. Um, so you know, not that I wish to big up my role in this, but you see what I mean about yeah, yeah. Is, no, absolutely. Trauma. And I assume one of the uh, key, key things you learn all during that side as well is you're obviously there to help the athlete and and help them in regard to maybe it's that appeal process, but it's also, I guess, learning, uh, I suppose, maybe how they're ticking and going, oh, I need to push you in this direction because you you need to go and speak to someone because you've got mental health or perceived mental health problems or uh, I presume you learn, learn a lot just sort of the other side of maybe what the role didn't entail. It was about putting the infrastructure in there, but also then when those people came knocking was to point them in the right direction, not just sport related, but well, this is beyond sport. You need to speak to these people over here to, to yeah, help. There was, I, after, after this six months, when I'd had these three athletes who um, all recovered, um, they, I asked for a meeting with, a lot, a lot of the um, senior people in sport, which we attended, which they all attended, and I'm I'm sat at one end of a point, you know, the pointy end of a boardroom table, and the other three sides are filled with everybody else. And I just was like, how many more attempted suicides do you guys need before you put mental health into the insurance scheme for the athletes? And to be fair. They responded and they did. And we got a um, confidential helpline that I could call that bypassed the national governing bodies and went straight to the clinicians in the England Institute of Sport. So they were all bound by patient and client confidentiality. And so, you know, it was the start of a... You see what I mean when I... There was nothing to protect vulnerable adults. There was nothing to protect the mental health of, and and, and this is less than ten years ago, which you know you find mind-boggling. I find mind-boggling, but you know, to be fair, the system to a degree has responded, Um, um, and uh, yeah. So I'm not not sure where my thought process would go. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So then you obviously touched on in, in 17 struggling yourself. Do you think that the things you'd seen and learned over those earlier years and just like us all battle scarred a bit further in our lives, you, you, that helped you to look at your own situation and, and perhaps see signs of that you were struggling? No. All right. Okay. Completely the opposite. Right. Okay. Um, I was, I was completely ignorant of my own well-being. Um, I was, uh, Mrs. Braid used to say to me occasionally, um, I'd like to speak to you, but are you distracted? And I'd say to her, I'm not distracted, I'm focused. Um, And I wasn't listening to any, you know, all of my family were concerned. Um, I learned in retrospect. Um, And, you know, these guys had come back from, these successful games in Rio, and then there were the the canoeing and the swimming and the so on and so forth. And of course, you know, they dragged on. And I had, I'd won the trust of many. With that trust came responsibility. And I had to do what I had to do. And I was supported by a couple of great people. There was a guy called Peter Crowther, who's the, um, senior partner of uh, a firm of solicitors called uh, Winston Straw. He was really, I don't know how I'd have got through one of this without Peter and Tanny. Um, but, the, but the system slowed it all down, legal process and so on and so forth. And eventually, so in May of, May of 2017, two things happened in consecutive weekends. One, my son, Harry, said to me, Dad, do you think you're working too hard? And 
I said, ooh, because uh, it was Harry, he pierced my armour, and I had to have a little think about... I said, I, what, what age was he at the time? Huh? What age was he at the time? Harry, he's... Um, oh, then. Uh, 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 <laughs> early 20s. Yeah, maybe. right. We, we'd gone away for a boys' weekend here in Ida, Lisbon. He, um, and... Uh, and he and he said to me when we got Dad, do you think you're working too hard? So he, to be fair to him, had plucked up the courage to ask, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. It's a failure. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, brilliant, right? Mm. Anyway, I said to him, I said, I'm going to sleep on it and give you the answer. I've got an answer for you. So I don't know how to relax anymore. And because, you know, athletes don't have weekends. Athletes train and compete all around the world. So I was, I was, you know, mentally, nobody else had asked me to, but mentally I put myself on standby all the time, right? The, um, so, so yeah, so he'd asked me that. And I listened to the answer and, and it frankly frightened me. Um, and then the following weekend, Harry came home again along with his, Big sister, Jess, because Mrs. Braid had finally succumbed, or no, I'd succumbed to Mrs. Braid's campaign of, can we have a dog? So this um, soft-coated Irish Wheaton Terrier, 12 weeks old, as big as my hand, answers to the name of Fred. He rocks up, he rocks up into our house, right? First time I'd ever heard a dog. Chaos. Joyous. Chaos, noisy, carnage. And this little dog's looking at me and he's like, please tell me the big fella don't live here because not only does he look miserable, he smells miserable. Yeah. And I'm looking at this little dog and I'm thinking, Fred, I've got carnage in my head. Every time I go through the front door, I've got more carnage. I've only got one safe space in this world, and it's this house. And you've just rocked up. <laughs> so we, I, 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 the only way I can describe it is feeling hugely lonely in my own home. Mm. And it just, panic attack, blah, blah, blah. I just had to get myself out. Went out, um, went out for a bike ride. Came back. Where have you been? I've been on a bike ride. Ooh. They, I said, I've been doing some thinking. One, I'm going to the doctors tomorrow because I think I'm poorly. Two, uh, I think I'm done at the BAC. And Diane and Harry and Jess were like, well, where the hell's that come from? We've been, we've been talking to you for, for years about this. And I just, you know, finally realised that... Um, uh, I, I couldn't do it anymore, and so well, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it anymore for my own well-being. Yeah, yeah. But I, I also couldn't do it anymore because I think I'd done as much as I could do, not necessarily intellectually, but politically. Um, and it was time to pass the baton to somebody else. And did you feel? Did you feel like immediate kind of easing of? whatever I suppose was going through your mind when you made those decisions? Um, Reflection. Not, not. It was just a stepping stone to move in the right direction. No, I I think it was a stepping stone in the right, it wasn't an epiphany moment. It was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. um, um, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't do this anymore. So, and I was signed off work for a month, um, and that gave you a time out to reflect. Yeah. Um, and and I think it was, and I think it was then that um, you know weight start you know meds kick in, start psychotherapy, start yeah. to talk to a few of the people that I trust. Um, and then it was this, as I say, this conversation with Adrian that um, uh, got me thinking about 
who's looking after the people, looking after the people. And, you know, Tanny's, um, Tanny's duty of care review report published in April 2017 um, didn't have the traction or for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I and I sort of felt I couldn't let that go either. Um, and this isn't, you know, it's not about, I hope it doesn't come across as that. It's like a thing of ego because it's, it's not. But I just, I just care about um, this sector that, you know, you've been in and I've been in for God knows how long. Yeah, yeah. I guess a part of that, though, is balance between caring about that and then obviously caring about yourself as well. I guess that's the, at that stage, part of that challenge. Yeah, I've got the balance wrong. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, but, um, one of the things that is important for me, as it is for most people, I guess, is, is to have a sense of purpose. <laughs> um, and uh, they, uh, there was a guy, one of the things that I did get training in very early, 2013-14, I was, I was trained in um, mediation by uh, a a business called Core Solutions, fantastic guy called John Sturrock, QC, who, uh, who ran that business. And um, I haven't spoken to John for a while, but John, John was very influential with me. And in that summer of late summer of 17, I'd spoken to John and uh, said, I've, I've had this idea that I might go again, John. And um, I've talked to a few people about it and I've drank enough coffee to fill a bloody bath. They, um, he said, well, get on with it. And I thought, you know, he's right. And it, and it took somebody like John, who I respect hugely, to you know, yeah. leap, off, leap, off, leap off the edge, you'll be all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and those... Uh... Those, I suppose, maybe call it there's life lessons in uh, since then, the last four years. How have you that going back to finding that balance? That's just something you're conscious, much more consciously aware of now, and the family around you. The I well, I'm a lot more self aware, um, and I, you know, I have I have found whether it's it's a French word, isn't there? Metier, which is about sense of purpose, isn't it? The, um, I found that again. Um, the thing that's interesting, I don't get it. it can, I don't get it 100% right 100% of the time. I still, you know, if you, if, you're, if you find yourself in a space which I am in now, you know, I, I do a lot of, I'm a mental health first aid instructor. I do a lot of that work in sport. Um, so, you know, these are things I'm passionate about. And sometimes it's, you know, it is a, a memo to sell, you know. Um, I have a strap line to my business, which I have to remind myself about, which is about taking give care. If you don't take care of yourself, you're no good in giving care to anybody else, be that family, friends, business colleagues, whatever. The, and I don't always get it right, Martin. Um, so, you know, I've had one or two wobbles, nothing, nothing. There's enough checkpoints in there now. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, one of the best ones is your man who rocked up four years ago when he was 12 weeks old and he's now four and a chunk. The, um, I, I, I have this. Uh, you know, it's a very, if you're a CEO of anything, it's a very lonely place. They, if you're, if you're uh, a CEO and your well-being isn't great, then it's even more lonely. So I, I try to have what I call a personal board. Um, and there's four or five individuals that would be on that. Adrian, your man. This is the Adrian Christie show. I, I mean, he's, got, he's going to have to be a listener of the Manxwise podcast, whether he likes it or not. The, the, the um, Adrian is um, people who can, who I trust, and people who can say, Ian, you're looking a bit moody, or Ian, 
I haven't heard from here a bit or whatever. The, so there's four or five of these guys, right? And in the governance, in good governance structure, there has to be a senior non-executive director on your board, right? Yep. My senior Ned is Fred, Fred the Ned, because <laughs> I check in with him every day, and he's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm in. You know, it's a, it's a very. I wouldn't wish what I went through on anybody, but a lot of positives have come out of it as a consequence. Yeah, using those those experiences yourself to help others ultimately, aren't you? As well as yourself. Uh, so just before we, I suppose, wrap up part one and go, in wrap, like I said at the start, talk about Alamansport uh, and the work you're doing there, just at this present moment, we're in May, are we, June? Uh, what, what's what's going on in, in your world in regard to just excluding the Alamansport element? What, what, what are you doing? Um, or what aren't you doing? Maybe it's the other question. <laughs> Yeah, there might have to be a third podcast. Yeah. Um, um, well, things that I am particularly pleased to be associated with and hopefully helping with. Um, I did some, uh, I've been doing some work for a while now with um, Active Tameside, the service provider of leisure facilities in that part of Manchester. Um, which one matters to me because as an ex-Manchester University graduate, I do regard myself, albeit self-appointed, as an honorary man. The, um, and the guy at the top of there, this guy called Chris Rushton, CEO, top man, the, um, and he has, um, I've been helping him with well-being of his employees, and I've delivered some mental health first aid instruction to, to create mental health first aiders inside his organization. And we had probably about 30 across nine sites um, back end of the year. And I said to Chris, so what happens now then? And he was like, well, what do you mean? And I was, well, who's looking after the people looking after the people? Oh, I see what you mean. So I've been running on a monthly basis Identically focus groups for the mental health first aiders uh, once a month. And I get them to come together, share knowledge and experience and offer peer support. And it, it also gives an insight and a sort of finger on the pulse of how things are in. in and these guys are just brilliant. Um, it will come to Isle of Man in, in, in a bit, but this isn't about. You know, this isn't about me. Uh, it's, it's not a sort of all-embracing leadership. This is about me helping others bring the best out of themselves and each other. And and I'm, and I'm really proud of these guys. I just think they're brilliant. Um, so is one thing. Um, UK Coaching has a set up a coaching advisory panel. The reasons best known to them, I now sit on it. Um, and there is a spin-off group of uh, duty of care uh, working committee, which I um, have the pleasure and the privilege of chairing. And again, I'm trying to bring different people with different lenses. Um, when I was out, we said earlier, we've both been out for separate bike rides, came across some people on a bike on my on my bike ride in Sussex this morning, and they were swim coaches, and they worked in triathlon uh, down here. And I said, uh, "Oh, and they were also trying to get their make their clubs more diverse and inclusive." So I'm thinking, "You're going to regret riding with me here." They, so I'm picking oars in these guys. So what have you done about diversity and inclusion? How's it going? What's a success? Uh, too early to say. I said, how, how diverse are you coaching? Uh, white males. All right. <laughs> they, da, da, da. I said, uh, tell me what you know about UK coaching. Who? They, well, UK coaching says their strapline is we're here for the coach. Ooh. Well, these are the things they do. So there's a lot to be done 
yeah. I think, um, which I hope I can make a contribution to, to make UK coaching more visible as that voice of the of the coaching community, whether it's whether it's in Wivelsfield Green or whether it's in the Olympic Stadium somewhere, you know. Um, yeah. but those are, you know, those are things that are driving my sense of purpose, I suppose. And when you look at a quick snapshot now compared to 2012 and uh, the voice and uh, the governance, is that a million miles from where it was? And is there a million miles to go? Obviously, there's always progress to be made and improvements to be made. But is that due to your lot in a lot better place? I'm assuming it is, but there's still a lot of work to do in general, whether that's well, at athletes or a coach level. The, well, there's about 14 questions in that one question yeah. you've asked me about. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, with regards to the BAC, um, I passed the baton in 2017 uh, and it has continued to have a voice uh, and so it should. Um, but I don't, you know, it, it doesn't need, for all sorts of reasons, it doesn't need the shadow of Ian Braid over it. So I, I keep my distance from that. Um, with regards to duty of care, you know, um, it, it's very difficult to say how how much progress has been made and where, because I still think there's a lack of transparency um, and, and trust. Sport, sport marks its own homework. Um, Tanny, Tanny's number one recommendation was there has to be an independent ombudsman for sport. And there still isn't. And even, you know, sadly, with all of the saga and the sad cases that have been exposed in the most recent case of gymnastics in the world that I was involved in, you know, the, the retiring CEO, Jane Allen, before she left, said, you know, maybe there needs to be an independent ombudsman. There's still work to be done, um, I think, to... Uh, create more transparency and for more people to have more confidence in the system and the processes. You, you touched on Tanny's report earlier and that sort of the vibe I got was that it's, it perhaps hasn't had the uh, impact it should. Is that is that political things? Is that Where is that driven from? Or again, people just... It, it was largely political. Um, the, it was... It was slated to appear at around about the time of the public pronouncement on the investigation into cycling, which was brought about by initially by Jess Varnish and, and uh, all in out with Shane Sutton on the other way around. The, um, so the duty of care review was delayed whilst everybody was sorting out what had to be redacted and what not. And then you get into 2017 and Cameron called that election, which was about his vote of confidence vis-a-vis Brexit. So Tanny was eventually told at 12 noon on the day before Perda started that your report is being published at four o'clock this afternoon. So there was no chance to get anything mm. in or around it. So it's then published just ahead, eight hours ahead of Perda. Cameron loses the election, the, so you have to wait for uh, the appointment of a new uh, leader of the Conservative Party, who then has to then have, a re, you know, who's going to be the Minister for Sport. It was again Tracy Crouch, who I thought was excellent, to be fair to her. Um, she then resigns on a point of principle around all that stuff around gambling. But then your new Minister of Sport, then you've got Brexit, and it's just... You know, it just gets lost in the wash. Yeah. Um, um, but it's still, you know, it's four years since it was published and it would be good to know a bit more about who's done what where because I think it would help sport with its reputation and its credibility more broadly. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So uh, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate the time. It's, it's a great insight, I'm sure. Uh, or I'd hope to think you look back at the imprint you made that, uh, I'm sure you've helped many athletes and hopefully coaches along that path. And I'm sure that 
that continues. Uh, what we're going to do, a touch on at the start in part two, uh, which will which will be out in due course, is talk about your interaction with Alman Sport. But for the moment, appreciate your time, Ian, and thanks for thanks for taking the time to to chat to us. Listen, thank you for listening. I'm sure your ears are bleeding, Martin. I, uh, oh, far um, from, no, thank we, you. No, far from it. And I suppose what I should say, we've chatted to many athletes on the on the podcast. Obviously, a number local and mental health and. Uh, is a big part of that, a massive part of that continues continually comes up. Uh, so the more people can talk about it and 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 then have avenues to talk and have a voice about it, it's it's really important. And if we can even on the podcast get one person talking about it, I know we have. Uh, it's got it's got to be a good thing. It's got yeah. to be good. So thanks yeah, for joining my, us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, keep an eye out for part two.